just happened. Our Kermi has offered to take us on a visit to his homeland overnight. <laughs> I think we should all be grateful to him. Uh, well, thank you very much, Miss Piggy. Mm -hmm. Besides, a weekend in this swamp will be very healthy for you all. Uh, just how do you figure that? If you go, I won't put you in the hospital. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, Nicholas, it's been a while. It has. It's good to hear your voice. Took some time off. Some much needed time off, I think. Recharge a little bit. Uh, what you been doing to keep busy? Uh, getting ready for March, which is going to be a uh, perfect storm of stress. It's going to be great. Well, we're recording this at the end of February, but my Kickstarter launches on March 1st, and my day job is also moving offices, which I'm vaguely in charge of. So March is going to be a long month. I've been catching up on my Oscar movies. You know, I like myself a good piece of cinema every once in a while. Just a bit. And you know I'm serious about it because I use the word cinema. Uh-huh. And uh, so I've been catching up on all the kind of the best movies of 2021 and really, really digging into those and having a good time. Licorice Pizza, probably still my favorite, but The Tragedy of Macbeth with Denzel Washington, way up there too. I never actually read that play. I don't think I've seen any productions of it either. You don't need to. Just watch the new one. Okay. It's Denzel and Francis McDermott just acting their asses off, and it's, it's pretty great. Nice. And it's very stark, black and white, almost minimalist look that is a weird pairing this is a feed of lunatic daring we're a podcast about jim henson and the muppets before we get started i'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring facebook instagram twitter lunaticdaring.com where you'll find our episodes our watch list and our bibliography and while you're at it if it you know if you think about it leave us a review on your podcast app of choice that would really help out a lot we're coming back now. We uh, we finished out our third season. We are now coming back to discuss the fourth season of The Muppet Show. We are That means we are well over halfway done to The Muppet Show, which is nuts. We're coming back to talk about season four, as we've been doing, two episodes at a time. Uh, we're going to start off tonight with, I'd say, a fairly important guest in the history of The Muppets. And um, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. So uh, are you ready to get things started? I'm ready to get things started. with our very special guest star, John Denver. So Nick, when I hear the name John Denver, it's almost synonymous with the Muppets for a couple of reasons. Um, well, basically one reason, the Christmas album. Tell me a little bit about Mr. John Denver. John Denver, born Henry John Duschendorf Jr. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on New Year's Eve, 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico to... Okay. <laughs> Henry John Duschendorf Sr. and Irma Louise. His dad was an Air Force pilot. Irma Louise Duschendorf? Yes. Okay. Um, it's a good name. Yes. Uh, his dad was an Air Force pilot. Uh, his dad was particularly stern, and they moved around a lot due to being a military brat. And that's the more stereotypical military brat that you'll probably hear or experience that you'll probably hear about. John would receive his first guitar at age 11 from one of his grandmothers. He was a member of the Tucson Boys Choir until his dad got stationed in Alabama. John did not like Alabama. He didn't like the presence of segregation in the ways in which racism was showing up at the time. Uh, they would go from Alabama to Texas, where he would attend Arlington High School. He would run away his junior year in order to go to California and, I guess, try to start his music career then. His dad went out to California on a friend's jet and brought him back to finish high school. Did he leave on a jet plane and didn't know when he was coming back again? We'll get to that in a minute, too. Okay. By the time he got to college, he'd played guitar well, or he knew how to play guitar well enough to play in local clubs. He attended Texas Tech University and sang with a folk group called the Alpine Trio. He would become a member of the Delta Tau Delta fraternity and drop out of Texas Tech in 1963. I don't know that the two events are necessarily related. He moved to LA, he returned to LA and started living there and singing in clubs. He joined a group called the the Chad Mitchell Trio in 1965, of course, as he's joining, Chad Mitchell's leaving, and it eventually becomes known as Denver, Boise, or Boys, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing that, and Johnson. He gets married to Annie Martell in 1968, 
they adopt two children, Zachary John and Anna Kate. And John goes on record as being very proud to be a dad. In fact, he states that it's one of the best things that he's done with his life. He hadn't had a lot of musical success up to this point, although he'd he'd stayed busy. Uh, He split from the band in 1969 and released his first solo album, which is called Rhymes and Reasons, including the song that would eventually come to be known as Leaving on a Jet Plane. Now, he released the album through RCA, but RCA didn't really support him. Leaving on a Jet Plane would later become a number one hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary which would help get him in the door. So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you wait for me Hold me like Because RCA wasn't really supporting him, John sort of went on an impromptu tour throughout the Midwest. He would play shows for free. He recorded two more albums in 1970. One was called Take Me to Tomorrow, and the other was called Whose Garden Is This? But his breakthrough came in 1971 with the album Poems, Prayers, and Promises. Uh, It featured songs such as Take Me Home, Country Roads, which went to number two on Billboard. Country Roads, take me home. producer, Jerry Weintraub, knew that critics wouldn't go for John, so he formed a strategy around trying to get John in front of direct audiences as much as he could. Throughout the 70s, he would end up working with the Muppets. We have the Muppet Show episode for tonight, as well as two following specials called A Christmas Together and Rocky Mountain Holiday. And he gets to star with another Muppet Show alumni in 1970s film, Oh God, in which God is played by George Burns. <laughs> yeah. Which I've heard good things about. I think it's one of my f- roommate's favorite movies, but I've never seen it. Just don't watch the sequels. Is there more than one? Yeah, there's Oh God, Oh God 2, and then Oh God, You Devil where he plays both God and the devil. That's kind of amazing. Denver would also host the Grammys five times during the 70s and 80s, and he guest-hosted the Tonight Show as well. In 1977, he would co-found The Hunger Project with Werner Erhard and Robert Fuller. Jimmy Carter appointed Denver to serve on the President's Commission on World Hunger. In 1982, John and Annie would get divorced, uh, saying effectively that career demands had driven them apart and they were too young to deal with his fame as it as it hit. Of course, once the final verdict came through and the property had been divided, he also took a chainsaw to his wedding bed because... I, <laughs> I, closure. <laughs> Something like that. He was just, he had to cut it in half. Throughout, he was a supporter of the Democratic Party. He's hes on the right side of history in a lot of cases. He, there were a number of charitable causes for things like environmentalism and helping the homeless, the poor, the hungry. He paid a lot of attention to the African AIDS crisis as well. Uh, he founded the charitable Windstar Foundation, which I always just thought was the name of a van. But in 1976, that was founded to promote sustainable living. He was very critical of the Reagan administration, but Reagan still awarded him the Presidential World Without Hunger Award in 1987. In 1989, he got into a plane accident while flying from Arizona to New Mexico. He he wasn't in the air when it happened. It was while he was taxiing, but Denver was unharmed. It just sort of spun the plane a few times. In 1988, he married Australian actress Cassandra Delaney. They would separate in 1991 and be divorced by 1993. It seemed like it might have been a bit of a media thing, but I didn't find much in what I was reading on the, the particulars. During the 90s, he also goes to court a couple of times for DUIs. At one point, he crashed his car into a tree in Aspen. On the afternoon of October 12th in 1997, Denver crashed. Uh, he was flying in a home-built aircraft, and he crashed into Monterey Bay. He'd had a lot of experience flying golf and flying golf and skiing were some of his favorite pastimes. And the post-accident investigation showed that there was an issue with him switching fuel tanks during the flight, which I think helps with, well, I mean, keeping the plane running, but also weight distribution to switch between the tanks, depending on where they're at. I I remember when that happened. I was alive, but I don't really think I knew who Denver was at that point. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I remember his death. Uh, his remains were cremated and his ashes were scattered over the Rocky Mountains. In 1998, Denver posthumously received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the World Folk Music Association. He He's one of those those past personalities that was just outside of my periphery, but I think I'd heard his name a few times growing up. And watching the episode tonight, I am definitely a big fan of him now. His voice makes me feel like I'm six years old. He's not just, I mean, he, you would categorize him as a country artist, but he's a crossover country artist. Mm-hmm. He's like a folky, crossover-y, poppy country artist, much like our second guest star tonight. And his voice takes me back to sitting in the back of my parents' car on road trips. They had a best of Kenny Rogers tape. They had a best of Simon and Garfunkel tape and they had a best of John Denver tape. And whenever we would go on a road trip, these, these, and I think we had the great Muppet caper soundtrack and these tapes would rotate when we travels. And so whenever I hear John Denver's voice, it always makes me feel like, like I'm back in the backseat of my parents' car. Mm. His voice is very soothing and, and very comforting to me, even if the music isn't always my style. I can see that. The Muppet Show, episode 401, featuring guest star John Denver, was produced between April 24th and April 26th of 1979. It would premiere in the UK in December of that year and stateside on September 20th. Uh, it was directed by Peter Harris. Beginning with the cold open, we, get to, we usually see Statler go, go backstage, but... That was one time. (laughs) That was one time. Was it just one time? Why do I feel like it was more than one? No, in either case. It does feel weird to see Waldorf backstage. It does. Waldorf stops by the dressing room to try and, I guess, sort of talk John out of having to do the show. And I I think his plan is to smuggle him out. (laughs) Yeah, Jim's really funny in this. Oh, yeah, he's great. Listen, Denver, you're a good kid. Let me help you get away so you don't have to do this crummy show. Come on. Wait a minute. I I, I want to work with the Muppets. You do? Well, yeah. I, I think this is a terrific show, Waldorf. You're beyond help. Right away, he comes across as the most like affable dude to ever live. I My immediate thought, and I don't know if it's kind or unkind as a thought, but I don't think any of the other guest stars we've had on the show looked so much like a Muppet themselves. Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Uh... I would Just argue saying. that John looks more so like it than than Paul did. Okay, All right. Um, but I could I could see that comparison. But I, I feel like Paul Williams is a bit closer to the Elton John scale. Maybe it's just because maybe it's just because they actually had Paul Williams puppets is why that occurred to me. Hmm. We go to the Muppet Show theme, uh, and when Gonzo tries to play his trumpet, I guess he channels his inner crazy Harry because his head explodes. But then we see him peek in from the side and he's excited over the development. We don't really see him from the neck down. Like, I think we're supposed to think that that's just a a robot that he'd made, but. Or, or his disembodied head. Gonzo's got range. I did want to point out in the opening credits here, there's a little bit of a change. The choruses, the male and female choruses Hmm. have now been combined into one shot. Did you notice that? I did. We didn't see backlighting in the first season did, or in the third season, did we? They've taken the male and female choruses. They've combined them so they sing together. They've created a set where it's a set of archways above another set of archways, and they kind of do it that way. Hmm. You notice this with a lot of shows. Credits keep getting shorter. Mm-hmm. You got because they just keep getting to the point where they keep making the credits shorter and shorter to pack more material into the episodes. You know, if you remember, Pigs in Space used to have a whole introduction where it introduced all the characters. Mm-hmm. Doesn't do that anymore, right? The Muppet Show theme used to be longer. It's not anymore, right? They they want that valuable time for for actually having the show. Happens to a lot of shows. Yeah, I could see that. But we, we have Kermit come on for his opening monologue. And Beauregard, which I wasn't expecting him to be the the fourth Muppet that I saw when the season opened, but it was kind of nice. He comes in and lets him know that everything's just a problem backstage. Well, how much time do you need? Thursday? Well, <laughs> uh, we have to do the number now. Well, okay, but it looks like a battlefield back there. It's supposed to. Oh, then it's finished. He's not the janitor. He's the handyman. Like, he's, he's becoming a carpenter. I think he's that guy that your slumlord holds on to. <laughs> because he does things for affordable rates. You, you can't complain because you don't want to pay. But it leads us into 
what I think is probably the perfect opener for a Muppet season. Yep. Which begins with a group of whatnot soldiers singing Why Can't We Be Friends as they move around a battlefield. But we're getting people from all sorts of different theaters for. I think at first we see like... Like Napoleonic. Yeah, Napoleonic and a couple of other things. And then... No gray uniforms. I was very pleased we saw no gray uniforms. Yeah, we do see a gas mask though. Well, we do. We see a gas mask because we see a World War One soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's people from War- there's soldiers from World War One, from the Napoleonic Wars, I think, from the American Civil War, mm-hmm. and Crazy Harry's there too because I guess I mean they need someone to set up the explosions. You don't get a scene like this without Crazy Harry, but also it's a, it it operates on a similar wavelength to for what it's worth, but it's a lot more fun. Yeah. To be clear, these are not the original lyrics of mm-hmm. Why Can't We Be Friends. The, you know, this is a war hit band, uh, from the band War hmm. in like 1975 but these aren't the actual lyrics they, they've they made the lyrics fit the scene of course we do get to see uh, Statler and Waldorf in uncomfortably spiky helmets <laughs> okay 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 first of all the, the number's a lot of fun and it's got that irony going on and, and, it, and it's a good time but then Statler mows them down with a machine gun it's okay. He was shooting blanks. And then we cut to Statler and Muldorf, and they're wearing pith helmets. Now, we have often speculated upon their nationality or, or their history. This is going to, th- these two episodes are going to definitively prove that Waldorf is not only German, but still has family there. And I think he's probably a Nazi. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just happy that I didn't come up during this Mike Milligan episode. But I just wrote down the freaking Kaiser again. Like, it's all about, every time they talk about their history, they mention the Kaiser. If Waldorf's not a Nazi, he's got Nazis in his family. That's all I'm saying. Oh, both of them do. They absolutely do. We get to our backstage story, which actually, Miss Piggy is in rare form tonight. Oh, she's so good. It's great. Kermit announces that John Denver had invited all of the Muppets on a weekend camping trip into the swamp. Or he doesn't mention that it's a swamp at first, I don't think. But everyone else decides that they don't want to go, except for Miss Piggy, who I think confuses camping with glamping, even though that might not have been a term yet. It was not. Because I think she's expecting someone on one time with Kermit. She she very much is happy that they're going to be spending the night there. She, she has that moment where she's like, Kermit has invited us to go camping overnight. And you're like, whoa, Piggy's very excited. Does Piggy know where Kermit lives? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, all she has to do is slip Scooter like 20 bucks and he'll tell him. He'll tell That's her. That's true. And she probably has because she's definitely employed him, employed him otherwise. Miss Piggy believes that it's a group effort. And so she is going to let everyone know that it is actually much healthier for them to go on the camping trip because she won't put them in the hospital. <laughs> oh, I love her. She is a uh, very goal oriented pig. I mean, would you go camping in a swamp? Uh, As we find out later, they have alligators. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. She works with alligators, though. It's weird. But we get our our first number with John uh, shortly after this, where he sings a song called Garden Song. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Inch by inch. It's a nice bit. Yeah, this is one of those car trip songs for me. Uh, it's a song that was originally performed and recorded by David Mallet in 1978, so it's a relatively recent one at this point. It's just a folk song. Yeah, it's nice. It's almost... It reminded me of what a better version of that uh, original recording of Inchworm would have looked like. Right. Like, it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. No, it, it does some cool stuff with the moving flowers and vegetables and everything, singing along with them and stuff. It's a very John Denver song. He's definitely got a style. <laughs> he, he definitely does. But this is definitely one of those car trip songs for me, where I was like, yeah, I know this one. <laughs> I had never heard the song before in my life. Nor should you. Plant your rose straight and long Temper them with prayer and song Mother Earth will make you strong if you give her love and care. Love and care. Old Bro watching hungrily from his perch in yonder tree. In my garden I'm as free as that feathered thief of inch by inch, row by row. We go backstage again to see Miss Piggy just super excited to go camping with Kermit and. <laughs> To Kermit's credit, he does try to warn her to temper her expectations. She wants to bring dresses and shoes. 
She only needs four dresses and like a dozen pair of shoes, so it's fine. But then Kermit made it very clear that she would have to carry everything. She's not having that. Well, I mean, she's definitely about to make Scooter carry everything, but he doesn't know that yet. I think that's the plan. I think she's she figures she'll hire somebody or, yeah. But they then, uh, or Kermit pulls out Floyd's backpack to demonstrate just how little they bring along. And how much she's expected to carry on her back. Yeah, and this is Piggy's first time to think, maybe I'll get out of this. Except we see the return of Annie Sue. <laughs> Who, honestly, I thought they just put on a bus somewhere. Ah, uh, she's still there. Mr. Kermit, sir, hmm? when we get to the swamp, will you give me a swimming lesson? Oh, well, I sure, Annie Sue. It, uh, it might be kind of fun to teach a cute little pig to uh, frog kick. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> he agrees to give a cute little pig a swimming lesson. That's what he says. That's true. I also had a question. What are swim togs? I don't know. <laughs> Piggy, of course, is more than happy to carry her own weight. Because she doesn't deal with competition well, and she's, we'll call it territorial. We'll call it that. And she comes back in with the pack and just just on accident happens to swing it around and knock Annie Sue to the ground. Annie Sue's going to get her revenge at some point. We don't know when. I mean, if she's really a mob princess like we figured out last year, Piggy better watch out. From then, we uh, we go to the Swedish chef who is not inside of his kitchen. Oh, he's al fresco. Yeah, it's great. Uh, he's getting ready to prepare squirrel stew. <laughs> What is this, Kentucky? So the thing is, when we opened this, I felt like we were seeing maybe Emmett Otter's descendants. I don't know what the life expectancy of an otter is. I'm wondering if we're about to see something terrible happen to one of them. And then it like shifts to squirrel. And then I was starting to think that maybe we're just seeing like the origin story of... Actually, no, Bambi's probably older than this movie. But are we watching Bambi? Oh, yeah. We have to remember that this is the chef. And, and he will not catch those squirrels. He will not... He will not get the squirrel. Uh, he won't get the moose either. But and the and then he gets chased by a bear with a cleaver. Right. Which there was Muppet Knight has a bear character and I can't remember his name. Bobo. Bobo the bear. Bobo the bear. Uh, usually puns are very hit and miss with me, but when we go backstage with, well, uh, I have a complaint first of all. Okay. About the Swedish chef, but oh. Oh, he's no. speaking to and Jim is speaking to uh, intelligibly. I didn't notice that in this, in this sketch. He is basically just speaking English. Hmm. And, After uh, you watch I, it, I didn't catch it. As I as I criticized Jim Henson. <laughs> we go backstage again, and we get to see a scene between Gonzo and John. And the first note that I put down for this is that, like, this is the scene that sold me on Denver. Because he was completely game. He picked it up and ran with it. It was great. But Gonzo asks John for advice because they're both in the same field. Well, yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, you, you've got to take care of your throat. You can't let yourself get too tired when you're singing. You've got to get... Well, I don't need help with my singing. <laughs> I need help with my gardening. You've got a garden? Oh, yeah, John. I've got the world's biggest mold garden. Uh, because Gonzo's got the biggest mold garden. Yeah, he's very Probably proud of in it. the world. But he's worried that the, the garden is plotting against him. The garden plot. <laughs> it's such like everything, everything in this conversation's a pun. Oh yeah. And it's so, it's so perfectly done. Cause like between the performance and the lines and just the way that each one feeds into the next one, especially yeah. once the mushrooms show up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. And then John closes it out with a line of nobody knows the truffles I've seen. Nobody knows the truffles I've seen. <laughs> a Bad person for this. My first association with that is always going to be Spaceballs, but... <laughs> She's a base. <laughs> Nobody knows the trouble I see. She's a base. I don't know if I'm over or underselling it, but the scene was like very, very tight, very well done. John very easily could have just come on and sang a couple of songs and left, but... He's also kind of seventies in this. He calls him my man. He does something groovy, or he's, he says something's groovy, or something like that. Or far out. He uses the term far out. You know, so it's very constant in the seventies. You know, yeah. Um, Maybe even the sixties. Now, if you like puns, you'll also like the UK spot. Not as much, but close. We get to see Miss Piggy singing a song called "Trees" as a tree. We'll say it gives her notes on her performance at the end. Yeah. Ah, what a 
call you a pine in the neck. <laughs> With a voice like that, you won't be very popular around here. <laughs> if I couldn't sing any better than that, I'd leaf. Excuse me while I chop some wood. It's based on a Joyce Kilmer poem. It's just set to music. We saw this earlier. Wayne and Wanda attempted it in episode 113, but to Miss Piggy's credit, she gets to the end of it. Almost, at least, yeah. Almost. Until she's interrupted by a particularly gnarly looking tree that does not like her voice. It it looks so much like the trash heap. Piggy's still on fire, though. Oh, yeah, she's great. The performance is, is great. Frank has just been taking time to recharge. Well, I mean, you know, they had, they, I don't think they did anything. I mean, they worked, I'm sure, but they didn't, they didn't make a movie during this hiatus. So at least they had a little time off, maybe. Mm. I, I honestly thought that our next section was the UK spot and not Miss Biggie singing trees because it's Why waste great, it? <laughs> right? Because it's awesome. It's amazing. Uh, sticking with our, uh, our pig theme, we have three hiking pigs singing a song called The Happy Wanderer. But every time they sing the third Valdera, Someone falls or something else bad happens. We love to go a wandering along the mountain tracks. And as we go, we love to sing our knapsacks on our backs. Valdry, Valdra, Valdra, Valdra. Um, it's a song that was originally by Friedrich Moller and Antonia Ridge. It came out in 1953. It's a short, sweet sketch, but you you see the... It's sort of like a play on the whole little Three Little Pigs thing, but... I overhead the skylarks wing They never rest at home But just like us, they love to sing As o'er the world we roam that third guy knows what's oh. coming because like, okay, the first guy fell off the mountain. Maybe yep. he just lost his footing. Second guy fell off the mountain at the same time. And the second guy takes a tumble. The oh, sh- yeah. They go to a wide shot when he falls and he goes flying. And then the third guy is waiting and he's trying to be as careful as he can. And then rocks fall and everybody dies. I'm going to praise perform uh, tonight. I'm going to keep praising performances, I guess, because because Dave goals plays the top pig, Hmm. I believe. And he is so good after the other two get knocked off when he, when he does the next verse, but he's, yeah, he's doing all trepidatious. Mm -hmm. Oh, may I go a wandering until the day I die. Oh, may I always laugh and sing beneath a clear blue sky. I wrote down that this bit was horrifying and hysterical. Those two overlap a lot more often than we'd like to think they do. It's just the way he goes flying. The way the second one goes flying, there's no, it's just, just horrible. It's, it's a great, it's a tidy sketch. We, you see the punchline coming a mile away and it's no less satisfying for it. My wife kept yelling at them, going like, stop singing. Yeah. That's all they need to do is stop singing. From there, we get to see uh, what is probably my favorite scene of the episode. (laughs) Because we've talked about the great Frank Oz. Frank Oz the Great. But I don't think he has ever got me to laugh as audibly as he does during this scene. (laughs) As we see Miss Piggy progressively lose her shit. (laughs) Miss Piggy comes in to sort of, I guess, endear herself to John, and she shows off her designer collection hiking suit. And John looks, John takes one look. He's like, oh, yeah, she's not going to survive. We should probably talk about some of these. uh, Some of the things we're going to encounter in the swamp. Right. Yes. Well, do do you have everything? Do you have your snake bite kit? What? Your your snake bite kit. There are snakes in the swamp. They may bite you. What? Uh, Snakes? 
Well, yes, Piggy, snakes. And, and also, one th you, you need a short, sharp stick about that long. Oh, a walking stick, yes, yes, no, I'm no, sure. No, 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 this is for the alligators. Alligators? Why, yes, darling, the alligators, when they open their mouths to eat you, you, you jam the stick, and, and they can't close their jaws. So he asks if she's packed her snake bite kit, and Miss Piggy doesn't realize that one might get bitten by a snake in a swamp. <laughs> And then he asks if she's packed a sharp stick to prop open the mouths of attacking alligators, which I don't think is a viable strategy on any level. Say it correctly. Alligator. Yes. Thank you. Uh, little, little Muppet movie call back here. <laughs> John also warns. And like the, the thing is I'm giving the point by point, but Miss Piggy is progressively losing her shit. And the best part is it doesn't take very long at all for John to break. And it's not like Jimmy Fallon breaking all of the time. You just see, John going in knowing that Frank is a star and then not realizing how much of a star Frank is as Frank keeps ratching it up to 11, 12, 13, and so on. Break can't be scripted, right? Uh, That's got to be real. That's oh got to no. be real. I, I think that that was 110% John just being like, I didn't realize Frank's voice can go that high. Well, yes, and also, Piggy, one other thing, and this is of, of critical importance. Yes. Every morning when you get up, before yes. you put your boots on, yes. be very sure to shake them vigorously. Why? Well, Piggy, at night when you're asleep in the swamp, sometimes there, there are spiders and little creepy crawly things, and they'll, they'll get on your boots, and, and if you don't shake them out... <laughs> Frank's entire offstage persona is just like, angry young man storms across stage, etc., etc., and John's probably got one impression of him. And then he just sees Miss Piggy go in and find new and interesting octaves to hit. <laughs> and he's still, so good. John's still delivering the lines. He's still doing great. But you just see him trying and failing to just not laugh. And it's amazing. And it's but it works for the scene, too, because he's kind of pulling one over on her. Mm -hmm. He knows he, he knows he's ripping her. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he kind of cracks up halfway through makes sense. Oh, man. I'll say this. It's great acting. Yeah. On Frank's part. You know, these guys are the puppeteers are actors mm -hmm. and uh, it's just great acting, great comedic acting. <laughs> but then. So I don't know. This is my favorite part. This is a great part. And I, I don't know where I fall on, on the side of sympathizing with Kermit as opposed to not because Miss Piggy absolutely does come home or come down and insult his home. Yeah. But also Kermit might have had a justified but not necessarily effective reaction. Me, we were spending a week in the swamp. Mm -hmm. You never said there would be snakes and spiders and alligators. Uh, well, no, I, I was saving the best part for a surprise. Surprise? Mm -hmm. Kermit, you are out of your little green mind. Well, Gina speaking, you know, I, I was born in the swamp. My, my roots are there, and I, I just wanted you and my other friends to see it. But uh, we don't have to go back to the swamp. We can uh, we can go to back where to where to where you were born, the sty. You know where your roots are, where pigs eat swill and wallow in the mud. Remember that, huh? He's like, I'm glad to see that you're in a position to judge me. Let's talk about That's where you came from. At which such point, a good, such a good turnabout. Oh yeah, it's great. But you, I feel like there's a little bit of pain in it. I feel like Kermit might have actually had his feelings hurt a little bit. I think he's had his feelings hurt by this whole episode. No one wants to go back to the swamp with him. Oh yeah, probably. But at this point, he's just like everyone's talking about where I'm from. You're from the freaking sty. We want to go back to the mud and the swill. Oh, it's so good. Such a great turnaround. Oh yeah. Oh. Uh, of course, she wins. <laughs> I, I feel like Kermit's got the moral victory, but. Piggy's got yeah. the projectile one. She karate chops Kermit and he goes flying. Just flying into the curtain on stage. <laughs> so from there we go to our final number with John, where he sings Grandma's Feathered Bed with a Muppet bed full of kids and dogs, which it's an interesting choice, but it's nice to see some of our old friends again. Yeah, we got Muppy, Baskerville, Afghan Hound, some random pig. Of course. My kids love this one. It's nice. I liked it a lot. Um, it's 
a song that was written by Jim Connor. It was first recorded by John on his 1974 album, Back Home Again. I think John shows up as the grandma at some point as well. Yes, he has a cameo as, as his grandmother. Yes. Doing Eddie Murphy proud. <laughs> yeah, kind of. All the talk about the farm and the war and the greatest thing about the war too. And I'd sit and listen, watch the fire till the cobwebs fill my head. Next thing I know, I'd wake up in the morning in the middle of the old feather bed. It was nine feet high, six feet wide, soft as a downy chick. It was made from the feathers of forty left geese and the whole boat of all folk chick. It holds eight kids and four hound dogs in the mini beast over the shed. We didn't get much sleep, but we had a lot of fun on grandma's feather bed. Yeah, just a lot of fun. Just a, a story about a big old bed that his grandmother had that everyone loved to sleep in together. Mm-hmm. It, again, it, you're not going to find a lot of edge with uh, John Denver songs. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to. You're going to find sentiment. You're going to find playful humor, mm-hmm. but nothing any kind of deeper or darker than that. But a fun number, a really fun yeah. number. It's fun. It's a nice closer. It brings us in gently. We get to the closing and we realize that John might be a bit more mean spirited than we realize. <laughs> Which, honestly, it just made me respect him more. Uh, But we just see John and Kermit, and Kermit looks like the kid from Up, but we're just going to leave that where it is. (laughs) He does look like Russell. (laughs) But John tries to comfort Kermit, and he lets him know that he'll teach him things on the camping trip. For example, how to catch frogs. (laughs) And if that had come out of like Vince Vaughn's mouth, it would have an entirely different meaning. But coming from John, it probably means he's getting eaten. Uh, and John starts highlighting techniques involving a flashlight in the time of day. And Kermit just looks horrified because he already knows about all of those techniques. Oh, it's such a great moment when he goes, he goes, see what you do is you wait for the night and you take these flashlights, you shine them in the water. And Kermit's like, I know all about the flashlights. Do you think John worked with Doc Hopper? Uh, it, it's definitely Doc Hopper ish, but <laughs> maybe he composed a jingle for him. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was, uh, <laughs> that was very funny. He's like, I, I know those flashlights, John. I don't want to go camping with you. How do you think my eyes got this way? <laughs> it's so cruel. Kermit's oh, got this Kermit. trauma back in the past of people coming to catch frogs. And John's John's just a country boy. And when you go out to the swamp to, to camp, you got to catch frogs. You know, I'm sure Jim, you know, Jim used to catch frogs back in the river, you know. So mm-hmm. how do you think my eyes got this way? <laughs> so so you want to know how I got these scars? Good opener. Yeah, it was a great way to open the season. A lot of fun. I'm looking forward to seeing the Muppets interact with John again. Yeah, we will probably get to that this season. We will get to the two Christmas specials, and they'll be they'll be out just in time for like May. Yeah, it sounds about right. So I'm going to go ahead and on a limb here. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the prize for guests with the longest hair is Crystal Gale. <laughs> I don't know yet, but <laughs> that was a lot of hair that woman has. It's true. Brenda Gale Webb was born January 9th, 1951 in Paintsville, Kentucky. That is a name. It is, isn't it? Uh, she was the youngest of eight children and the only one of her siblings born in a hospital. When Brenda was four, her father, a minor, developed black developed black lung and the family headed to Wabash, Indiana in search of better medical treatment. Ted, the dad would die four years later. Uh, music was always a big part of her family life. They would listen to the radio a lot and she would sing along to the radio with her older sister, Loretta. Loretta would later marry and change her last name to Lynn. So her older sister is Loretta Lynn. You probably remember her from the train station. Hmm. I think our first siblings, we've had a father and a da- father and a daughter, but I think this is our first siblings. As a teenager, Brenda started singing in church and recording demo tapes of folk songs. Loretta convinced her to tour during her high school summers, and at age 16, she played the Grand Old Opry in place of her big sister, who was sick at the time. After school, she signed with, her, with uh, Loretta's label, who made her change her name. 
they already had a, they already had the singer Brenda Lee on their roster. And the people out there are way too stupid to keep two Brendas apart, apparently. So she changed her name. She got the name Crystal because Loretta drove past a sign for the fast food joint Crystal and told her sister, that's your name. Crystals are shiny and bright like you. Not offended to be named after a burger joint. She went with it, taking her middle name as her new surname. But yes, she was named after she was named after the Crystal fast food joint, which is awesome. She released her first single in 1970 called I've Cried the Blue Right Out of My Eyes. Uh, it did well, but then her career kind of stalled out quickly. Her early tracks took some heat because the label kept insisting that she sing like her sister. Because again, the people with money never know what they're talking about. She ended up leaving that label and signing with United Artists in 1974. There, her music took a turn towards the mellow marketed at more of a crossover audience than the strictly country Loretta Lynn. Her debut album on the new label reached number 25 on the Billboard country charts. She recorded several more songs, including her first number, including her first number one hit, I'll Get Over You, in 1976. In 77, she released the single Don't Make My Brown Eyes Blue, a song originally written for Shirley Bassey, and it became an enormous hit in Crystal's signature piece. She recorded it in a single take. Don't know when I've been so blue Don't know what's come over you You found someone and don't it make my brown eyes blue I'll be fine when you're gone I'll just cry all night long It not only topped the country charts, but it also hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100, making it a true crossover hit. She released two more albums for the label before moving to Columbia Records. There, she began doing a lot more covers of songs. But this period, the late 70s and early 80s, she just keeps cranking out records and they keep selling. She performed with Bob Hope on top of the Great Wall of China, which is like hella random. She and Tom Waits worked together on the soundtrack to Francis Ford Coppola's flop, One from the Heart. She moved to Elektra Records, which eventually became Warner Brothers Records and made a whole bunch of more albums, including two collaborations with country artist Gary Morris. She branched out into other genres like gospel and jazz. And she changed record labels a few more times, but just kept recording. Her most recent album, You Don't Know Me, came out in 2019, and it was her first to chart since 1988. She was married in 1971, and that union is still going strong. She has two children and is today and is 71 today. Simply put, Crystal Gale is one of the most successful and beloved country crossover stars of all time. I liked her. I thought she was I thought she was solid. Like there I don't think she or I, I guess I should save that for the end of the, the discussion. The final number is amazing. Amazingly strange. Hmm. This episode did come with a cultural content warning. I think I know why. The Muppet Show, episode number 402, with special guest star Crystal Gale, produced uh, early May 1979, premiered in the fall 1979, directed by Peter Harris. In our cold open, Scooter stops by Crystal's dressing room to help her practice her lines, which are the exact lines she just said in a joke that I found very funny. Crystal Gale, 15 seconds to curtain, Crystal. Oh, thanks, Scooter. Would you do me a favor and cue me on my lines? Well, sure. Uh, Crystal Gale, 15 seconds to curtain, Crystal. Thanks, Scooter. Would you do me a favor and cue me on my lines? Perfect. Uh, we have the Muppet Show theme. Again, we have our, our new little uh, chorus thing with the two rows of Muppets. Bubbles come out of Gonzo's trumpet. <laughs> I love that Kermit comes out and says, welcome to the Muppet Show. We call it that because the show is full of Muppets. It's true, though. Fair enough. Uh, and then he introduces our opening number um, where he says, it's not from East Germany. It's not from West Germany. It's from South Germany, which is just Bavaria. So I don't know. I don't think he meant that, though. I think he meant <laughs> like Southern, but... I was like South Germany. I think it's just Bavaria, but a bunch. But we we come into basically a beer hall, a German beer hall, and uh, we've got penguins, pigs, dogs, a goat, and a walrus singing a version of the song "Swanee," which is a George Gershwin song from 1919. 
I think this is what gets the cultural content warning because at one point in the chorus, they spell out the word Dixie. And that word has become kind of, you know, the Dixie chicks changed their name um, because of it. Dixie is a word that helps symbolize the antebellum South or a love of the antebellum South. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's probably why it has a content warning. I couldn't find anything else unless they think it's offensive to kleptomaniacs. I mean, I could see that as some sort of cultural coding, but I couldn't tell you which culture it was coded for. So I don't know if that would count. Yeah, no, I just think in this one, it has some Southern references. You know, it's a song about the Swanee River is down South. And so it, it, um, it has some references to uh, to Dixie and things like that. So and the people up north and everything. I just I just think that's probably where it comes from. Mm-hmm. I, again, it's just a, it's a Muppet opening number. I thought it was pretty good. We get to the end and then Waldorf. Statler asked Waldorf if he liked it, and he says, I don't know, or I can't say. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, I still have relatives in Germany. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see it. I bet he's got some hiding out in Argentina, too. <laughs> more and more likely with each episode. So then we go back, we go to the canteen. First time we've seen the canteen since before the Muppet movie. No Gladys, though. Thankfully. And uh, Scooter is conducting the Prairie Dog Glee Club. Somebody stole my dad. And um, Kermit comes down to see what's going on. And we find out that prairie dogs are kleptomaniacs. As Scooter says, they have a little pack rat blood in them. They keep stealing everything. (laughs) We we can't have this on the show, Scooter. No. Uh, You better talk to him. I got to go introduce Crystal Gale. Mm. Okay, guys. I'm going to count to three. And I want to see everything just in the place it was. And then when he opens his eyes, everything's gone. <laughs> and this is going to be our backstage story is we're going to have these this little group of uh, thieves running around the Muppet Theater. Mm-hmm. I like this. Night. I like her opening number. It was nice. Like the, the turnaround was, was a lot of fun. I think the thing that, that caught me was in the back. You see, I don't know if it's the Frank baby or not, but Nightmare Baby is in the background as she's running away. There is a baby there. Yeah. yeah. So Crystal comes out and sings a song called River Road, which was first recorded by her for her 1977 album, We Must Believe in Magic. We'll hear another song from that later. Uh, It was written by a woman named Sylvia Tyson. basically a song about a woman who has wanderlust who always seems to be running away um she runs away when she's a kid she wants to run away from her marriage uh, it's kind of the the crux of the song and what we have here is crystal gale is on a treadmill and she is singing this song on either side of her or puppeteers but she's walking on a treadmill and in the background is probably on like a drum mm-hmm. right that's just it's like a rotating piece because it's the same like 12 foot of background over and over again and she sings a song and as she's going along she gets joined by other people who are running away other drifters other people that have hit the road whether it's a dog or a or some a, a felon in the black and white striped costume or or anybody else and then yes and then at one point she hits she runs into someone who i believe is frank who says um <laughs> you look like you're running away sure i am yeah i ran away in 1924 what happened Crystal's like, you know what? I don't want to live that life. And she turns around and the song makes a switch and then it turns into her going home. I don't know. I found her charming in this. I guess that's just, I, I don't know. I found her kind of charming in this. I thought she was game. I thought the way she, I, I thought the the treadmill 
and making her walk the whole time gave it an energy that it might not have had if she was just like sitting on a stool, you know? I th- I thought it was good. I, I think part of what would have pulled me out of it a little bit is it reminds me there were a couple of times last season where we would get like a jogging song or a dog walking song with much similar setup. Yeah. Which again, isn't a bad thing. I just thought like she could have just sang this song and, and it would have been whatever, but I think this gives it a dy- uh, dynamis- dynamism. Dynamism? I- That's not a word. Dynamism is a word. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. We get backstage again and, and Scooter's like, listen, Kermit, the prairie dogs are ready to go, but I can't stop them from stealing things. You need to talk to them. Before we go to that, though, mm-hmm. does Beauregard try to follow Crystal into her dressing room? Like, you just see the door shut on him, like, quickly. No, no we're going to find out in a minute what Bo wants, but I think he's trying to decide whether or not he's going to knock. Mm. It, it is interesting. You do have a little business in the background with Beauregard outside of Crystal's door, which you normally wouldn't have. That, that's going to pay off. Mm. Kermit brings in all the prairie dogs. He's like, guys, you got to stop stealing things. And while he's telling them to stop stealing things, they start stealing things and they steal Kermit's collar. I didn't realize that was a possibility. For a second, I thought they'd hurt him. <laughs> he does later say that his other one was in the wash. So mm. he has more than one because frogs don't actually have collars. So I guess it is just clothing. Scooter has a great line where he says, Gee, boss, I've never seen you naked before. So Kermit now feels naked without his uh, his collar. And that's going to be kind of Kermit's story for the whole episode. But then we continue uh, this background business that we had before. We continue where Beauregard comes into Crystal's uh, dressing room to get an autograph. She says, no problem. She signs it for him. He very ungratefully picks it up and goes, this is useless. It's upside down. <laughs> And then she just turns it around for him and he's amazed. In case you didn't get it, Bo's a real dummy. Bo lives life with very particular challenges. Just saying, in case you didn't get it. So in Pigs in Space, the uh, swine trek, it's so good though. Piggy and Link are on the bridge and Strange Strangeport comes in and he's all like, he's got ash all over his face and he's been through hell. And it turns out the ship is being invaded by an evil scourge. All is lost. What? Oh, they breached our security. There's no stopping them. Our weapons are useless. <laughs> He'll be here soon with his stormtroopers. I held him off as long as I could. Turns out that that evil scourge is Darth Nader. That looks a lot like Darth Vader and his chicken stormtroopers. The chicken stormtroopers are such a great touch. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he comes in with his chicken stormtroopers and he just kind of takes over the ship. Link there's two great lines in this for me. One, Piggy goes, what are we going to do? He's coming. And, and Link goes, I know what to do. And he gets on the, the thing and he goes, Link's mommy wanted on the bridge. But then there's a moment, too, where Strange Pork's talking about all the vile things that Darth Nader is. And uh, sorry, that Darth Nader is. And he turns Link turns to Piggy and goes, he's badder than anyone. Badder than anyone. Forgive me. But that's got to be like a Def Jam, the title of like a Def Jam record from the mid 80s. You know what that is, Chad? You know, mm-hmm. you know what it is. It lets us know that in the right Muppet adaptation, Gonzo would be the weirdo of Harlem because he would absolutely want Kermit to kiss his converse. <laughs> and I can't unsee it now. And it's weird and it's uncomfortable. And I, like, as I say that, I don't know what other Muppet I would cast as show enough instead. Maybe Animal. But realistically, probably not even Animal. Because Gonzo makes such a great villain. I just loved it when he said he's badder than anyone. I was like, I swear that's an LL album. <laughs> it might be. We're going to see Darth Nader again. Hmm. This is a character that will come back, but it, it does the same joke that they did in the um, Camelot one where, you, you know, his face is flat on and then he's they're hmm. like, who are you? And then he turns his profile and he's like, you'll never know. And you see the nose. It's the second time they've done that joke. But uh, a good pigs in space. Oh, yeah, that's great. What I love is, though, when Piggy finds out that it's Gonzo, she's like, I'm, I'm out of here. And she just leaves. <laughs> She failed. She doesn't play along with the chicken stormtroopers. She doesn't play along with the rest of the sketch. She's just like, I'm over this shit. I mean, after just the Robin leaves. Hood thing, I could absolutely see her being like, I'm not working with him again. <laughs> yeah. She's like, Gonzo, it's Gonzo. I'm out of here. Then we get a very odd UK spot. I don't even know how to explain this one. Uh, it's a fever. Like, I, I know I use that to describe the Muppet movie, but it's very much that in a different sense. Like, this is something that you would see worked into the wall or something that Michelle Gondry would do. It's a song called Hold Tight, Hold Tight, Want Some Seafood Mama. It's an old Andrew Sisters song. We're like an old pop group. But it's performed by Rolf, a shark, a lobster, kind of New Zealand. And a trio of fish. I can't explain this. The only thing I can explain is there's a lobster that gets unceremoniously grabbed by a shark. It's okay. It gets grabbed twice. Yeah, and it survives. 
but but so you got a shark over Rolf's shoulder that is singing about how much he loves eating fish. You've got three fish that are hiding from the shark in Rolf's piano, and you've got a lobster that occasionally helps Rolf play the piano, and they sing this song. And it's very strange. I couldn't wrap my head around it. The rhythm's weird. The song itself, like, is a strangely structured song. Felt like, I don't know. What did you think of this? I mean, it's kind of my kind of weird. This is something that I could absolutely catch myself outside of a Muppet context watching on Adult Swim or something. Um, But it's, weirdly enough, the fish and sharks just reminded me of fruit snacks that I would have had as a kid. It's a weird association to make. I don't know why it did, but maybe I was just grasping for something to hold on to as the, the bit went on. I think Rolf had probably accepted a cookie from Floyd that he shouldn't have, um, and maybe even ate a second one. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like a little bit of a trip, for sure. So after that very strange UK spot, we come backstage, and Kermit is now wearing a paper bag over his head because he does not want to be seen naked. And Crystal comes down, and she agrees with him because it's a family show, and he should not be walking around naked. I just I saw Kermit like that, and it made me think of the current design for the Riddler in the new Batman movie. <laughs> It is somewhat disconcerting. So Crystal gives him a feather boa, a pink feather boa to wear instead of his collar so he won't be naked. Kermit feels kind of dumb. But luckily, the prairie dogs, who are real assholes, by the way, uh, they come along to assure Kermit that, no, he does look really dumb. They're helpful like that. These these little pra- these prairie dogs are little sons of bitches. How did they get the job? Because they can sing? I don't know. They're a glee club. Speaking of singing, we get the Gills Brothers singing 60 Seconds Got Together which is a song originally recorded by the Mills Brothers. And these are the Gills Brothers. Get it? I don't know. That's that's the joke. It's a song about time. It's a love song about time. It's Jim, Steve, Richard, and Jerry. 60 seconds got together and they decided to become a minute. 60 minutes got together and they decided to become an hour. 24 hours kept ticking away And they all voted to call it a day It was a nice little bit. I, I thought this was the UK spot, but it's good. Time to say how much I love you And then uh, Piggy has called Kermit backstage and Kermit does not want to, for some reason, doesn't want Piggy to see him in his feather boa because, again, he's been told he looks stupid. And Piggy brings Kermit in and goes, all of my stuff's gone, including my black wig that I wear for Latin numbers. Have we ever seen her in one? Not really. No, we've seen her do Latin numbers, but I don't think she's ever worn a black wig for it. Hmm. Um, And Kermit has to explain to her that all of her things are being stolen by prairie dogs. And uh, they do try giving them back to her. And there's a really funny beat where the black wig ends up on Piggy's face. And Frank has a really hard time getting it off. And it ke- she keeps like whipping her head around trying to get the black wig off of her head. And it takes quite some time. Um, but Piggy's place gets entirely wiped out by the prairie dogs, too. Oh, yeah. This is the Muppet Show Tribble episode, effectively. Yeah, it, it is very Tribble-like, surely. Then we have the prairie dogs number. This is why they're here is because they have a number. They are a glee club. The Prairie Dogs sing a song called The Best Things in Life Are Free, which is written by Ray Henderson, Lou Brown, and Buddy Da Silva. Uh, this has been done before by uh, Rolf and Jimmy Dean. They actually sang it a couple times together on the old Jimmy Dean show. So I know... I know it's a barber shop and Fozzie's getting the hot towel treatment. And you can see that it's Fozzie the second that the screen opens up and they're there. Oh, yeah. My kids were pointed out. They're like, that's Fozzie. But I also sort of saw like it, it looked like the mask from the elephant man. And a little bit. Tonight's theme is just weird juxtapositions, which honestly is kind of like Dark Man, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I can I, I'm surprised I didn't go to Dark Man first. But yeah, no. Something of that nature where it's just sort of like Fozzie sitting there saying this is outrageous. Well, yeah, so they're 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 in a barber shop, but it also looks like it's kind of a general store at times and a I don't know, there's a lot of stuff going on in this shop. But um and they're singing the best things in life for free because they're stealing everything. But it turns out that underneath this brilliant disguise is it's not just Fozzie, it's Patrol Bear. And he has been undercover in this barber shop waiting to bust all of these prairie dogs for stealing. I- Bear on patrol, put you under arrest. 
Wait, 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 Deputy Bear. Surely you're not arresting these cute little things there as common thieves. Because if there's anybody that's soft on crime, it's Captain Link Hogthrob. Uh, he's soft on a lot of things. And, and in a rare situation, Statler and Waldorf back up Fozzie. I have witnesses! The bear's right! The prairie dogs are thieves! And you cut back, and then Link and Fozzie are in their underwear. Because the uh, the prairie dogs have stolen the clothes off their backs. And simple. then they cut to Statler and Waldorf, and they're laughing. And then all of a sudden, and they're in their underwear as well. Luckily, they're wearing like long johns, like full body underwear. But uh, this is this is the start of the uh, not the start of, but this is the continuation of the everybody's going to get naked <laughs> start part of the story. This would be a great episode for Sam to revisit his whole nudity in the world today. <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking about that the whole time. I kept thinking, where was Sam when everybody's running around naked? He was probably the first person they got naked. I loved Undercover Patrol Bear. I thought that was great. It was a nice touch for sure. It was nice twist so then we get a muppet labs where i'm not sure i buy the premise but it's kind of funny um beaker seems a little more game this time at least until the end well you you caught what he was singing when he came in right what was he singing you singing the banana song i didn't catch that i just put come mr Beakerman, telling me banana so bunsen has has created a banana sharpener and i'm not sure what that's supposed to do supposed to just let you store your bananas on a vertical surface in a, in a vertical like, surface but yeah. like push pins i guess i don't know but uh and then of course he ends up flinging them at beaker's face and um, at least he doesn't kill him he tries so then we get crystal's closing number where let's see how to put this she sings a new agey pop song while standing on the bow of a ghost ship So, Chad, mm-hmm. this was trippy. This is equal parts, total eclipse of the heart, because obviously. Yeah. Gelflings. A little bit. And Kate Bush running through a field while doing a cat impression and saying the word Heathcliff. <laughs> okay. It's like she sings it well. It's a very interesting piece. Well, Crystal sings her song, We Must Believe in Magic, from her album of the same name. And yeah, she's standing on the bow of what I can only describe as a ghost ship. And she's singing this kind of spacey song where she's talking about flying to Alpha Centauri and stuff and these spirits start flying around behind her and, and it's 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 new age as hell and it's <laughs> kind of creepy I thought it was interesting though we hadn't seen anything like it at the very least it's a slow moving thing and I realize I projected a lot of things onto it um, but it's like the thing is me so Crystal is a great guest I think I don't know if she's I, we'll have to see how the rest of this season shows up i don't think she's going to make any of those lists she she did she had a very good voice she she did play well with the muppets it just something about her performance made me think of some of the the season one guests that sort of existed in parallel to the muppets more than anything i can see that Um, that. she had her nice little moment with kermit and (laughs) stuff and like i said i think the um her first number did a lot of did a lot for me to like make me like her (laughs) but this number man I, I kind of dug it, but I dug it in a like, what the hell is going on kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, or just dug it because uh, it's nothing like we've seen before. But she's just standing on the bow of a ghost ship. So we get to our goodbye and uh, Kermit comes out behind. He's behind a changing screen because he's still naked. And um, he gives Crystal her feather boa back. But then uh, Prairie Dog comes along and steals it. And then everyone comes out on stage and everyone's lost their clothes. Scooter looks like he's completely naked. I feel like the prairie dogs have some sort of dirt on Scooter. I think Scooter's Machiavellian enough to have figured this out. I mean, they have everybody's clothes and they even take off uh, Crystal's dress. <laughs> that was a nice touch. I was actually, I was surprised to see that because I figured they'd, I, it, it might have to do with me thinking of the whole parallel track thing, but I was like, oh, she's probably not going to get touched by this. And then her stuff's gone. She's, she's down to her undergarments as well. Um, her quite your multiple layers of undergarments, but still her undergarments. Um, and, uh, and there is, there is one of the prairie dogs is wearing Kermit's collar as they dance around during the, as the credits roll. And then when we get to the end, Statler and Waldorf are sitting in their box in a couple of barrels 
because um, <laughs> they're covering to cover up their uh, nudity. Next time, a variety show that's gone to the dogs. Uh, so next time. We're going to be doing episodes four. I can't believe we're saying season four, but here we are. We're going to we're going to be doing episode uh, four hundred three with Mime Team Shields and Yarnell, and episode four hundred four with actress Diane Cannon. You ever seen Shields and Yarnell? No. It's one of my kids' favorite episodes. They're yeah. always asking to watch this episode. They're going to be so excited next week. <laughs> but they they love the Shields and Yarnell episode. We got some good guests coming up. And uh, we got a couple of personal favorites of mine this year. Kenny Rogers, Liza Minnelli, Mark Hamill, Christopher Reeve, uh, Linda Carter. Lots of good stuff this year. Dizzy Gillespie is this year. But until we get to that stuff, um, I have been Chad. I have been Nick. And thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Potowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, so much for the prairie dogs. Yeah, now we gotta worry about termites. <laughs> <laughs>